You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. senior pastor here at Bethel, and I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome, and uh, let you know I'm so glad that you're here, and uh, if you're visiting with us, we're particularly glad to see you this morning. Don't feel like you're here on accident in any way, and uh, would love for you to uh, let us know that you were here uh, in the Black Notebook, and make sure you stop by and uh, pick up some coffee on your way out. We'd love to uh, be able to say thanks for being here. If you've got your Bibles, go to uh, Proverbs chapter 16. That's where we'll be, Proverbs chapter 16. We've been looking over the last couple of weeks at the wisdom literature in the Bible, and and particularly uh, the book of Proverbs. And we are in a series called The Pursuit of Wisdom. We are wanting to see what God's Word has to say to God's people in the area of wisdom. And so we've talked about it as how to live out our our faith, how to to walk in this faith uh, that we have. And so the first week we looked at what the sage in Proverbs had to say about words, the words we use and the words we're influenced by. And the second week we looked at the the sluggard. And the the Bible, the Proverbs particularly, has a lot to say to the sluggard. The the sage will write to the sluggard. And 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 last week, we talked about um, self-control and um, what the the wisdom literature has to say about self-control. And this week, I want to pick up what may be one of the most um, prevalent themes in all of the Proverbs. You can begin at the beginning of Proverbs and go all the way to the end of Proverbs, and this theme continues to recur over and over again. And in fact, what we're going to look at this morning falls right in the middle, right right in the dead center of the Proverbs in, in 16, beginning in verse 17. And that is the issue of pride. And it's, uh, it's one of those issues that all of us uh, struggle with. It is part of humanity. It is part of what we came into the world with. And that is Pride. And so I want us to look at how um, the, the, the sage, Solomon here, will address pride and um, what he sees as the solution to pride. So look, look I'm going to begin in verse 17 of chapter 16 in the Proverbs, and we'll walk our way through just uh, three of these verses this morning. So in in verse 17, he says this, The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoils with the proud. As I said, this is the very center of the Proverbs. This, this highway that, that Solomon speaks of, that the sage speaks of here, literally, it means a, a raised road. And God often uses this as a metaphor with his people to talk about uh, following him. Not, not turning to the right or to the left, but to follow him on, on the straight 
way, a high way, the, the, the right or the left, that was where the false gods were. God wanted his people to keep his eyes on him and to not turn to the side, to one way or the other. This way, uh, when the Bible speaks of the way, it's literally the steps that we take. So there's a highway to follow. There are steps on the highway. So in other words, the, the reader says, listen, th this is the way, and these are the steps of the way. And I don't know if you've ever taken a shortcut. You've, you said, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm supposed to go there, and this is the way the road takes me, but I can, I can see the destination over there, and if I, just, if I just cut through here, I can get there. You know, and it's... The road sports, you know, in this way for a reason. And we have to think that the travelers before us considered this shortcut or this open field or this whatever it is and decided not to cut the road through there. I give you one of the most famous examples of all time. In 1845, there was a man named Lansford Hastings. And he published a book in 1845, and it's called The Immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, um, a description of the necessary routes to those countries and all necessary information relative to the equipment, supplies, and method of travel. And it was a, it was a guide. He, he published it for all of those that were um, desiring to go out west, out to, uh, to California, you know, to, 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 to follow their dream to go to this new, to this new wild world. And so before this was published, the typical route, if you were going to travel west, is that you, um, you would travel what was known as the Oregon Trail, and it began in Independence, Missouri. Uh, Matt, you were right. It's not Independence, Kansas. Independence, Missouri is where it began. And so you'd follow the trail until you reached Fort Hall. And Fort Hall was on the north end of the Salt Lake in Utah. And so in Hastings' book, what he proposed in this book, this um, immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California is he proposed a shortcut known as Hastings Cutoff. And so instead of traveling all the way to the north end of the Salt Lake, this cutoff would take you um, to California through the southern end, this, this Fort Bridge, the southern end of the Salt Lake, and you would end up in California. You'd meet up with the California Trail there, and it would cut off 350 to 400 miles of the trip. This is what he claimed, claimed and the terrain was much easier. So shortly after the book, there was a the book was published. A guy named James Reed um, read the book, and he decided, okay, my dream of heading west can finally be realized. Um, the, this is this route will make it possible. And so he gathered his family, he gathered his friends. We're going, hey, we're going out west. We're going to California. Uh, these are where dreams are made of. It can finally happen. Um, here, here's what Reed uh, didn't know at the time. Uh, Hastings Cutoff had never been traveled before. Not even by Hastings. He, uh, he wrote the book and explained a trail that he'd never taken. It was false information. And so to make a very long and interesting story short, here's what happens. Reed gets his family, gets a group of other families together, friends, talks them into going, and they're all going to go uh, on this on this trip together, here's a list of the families. So it's the it's the Reeds, the Graves, the Breens, the Murphys, the Eddies, the McCutcheons, the Keysbergs, the Stantons, the Wolfingers, and then one other family. You know who it is? The Donners. And you know how the story goes. 
So they head off, and, in, and they get to a place of point of no return. It's this, um, it's, it's this cutoff where if you go, you go north, you go to the regular place, but here's the Hastings cutoff, and they go. And everybody's telling 87 people in this group, don't go that way. Don't go. Here's what Reed's journal says at the end of the first day of the shortcut. Yesterday at noon, we arrived at the culminating point, or dividing ridge, between the Atlantic and Pacific. This evening, we're encamped at a little sandy, one of the forks of the Green River, which is a tributary to the Great Colorado, which flows into the Gulf of California. Thus, the great day. Dreams of my youth and my riper years is accomplished. I've seen the Rocky Mountains, I've crossed the Rubicon, and now the waters that flow to the Pacific. And it seems as if I've left the old world behind and the new one's dawning upon me. And every step thus far has been something new, something to attract. Should the remainder of my journey be as interesting, I should be abundantly repaid for the tools and hardships of the arduous trip thus far. Day one, that's what it says. By the, the normal route, it would have only taken three or four months. Hastings took Hastings cutoff took them ten months. Two-thirds of the men and women died. It took four rescue parties and over two months to retrieve the rest of the survivors. Starvation, murder, cannibalism, madness overtook them. Everybody told them at the point of departure, don't go that way. It had not been tried in their pride and hopes for an easier way, though, they went forward. It's the story, though, of humanity. If you read the Old Testament, you, you read in the Kings, you read in the Chronicles, it's the legacy of Israel. In fact, so much so that, that there's a good King Josiah, and it's summed up this way. It says, He walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And it can be said about him that way because all the other kings, there's hardly any king that can be said that way. Isaiah 30, Isaiah is going to tell Israel, God, listen, God longs to be gracious to you. And it's surprising and amazing because they've been walking for centuries in sin and rebellion and idolatry. They'd lost their way. They were lost. And Isaiah announces to him, listen, God, God wants you to come home. There is a way. There is a path He has forged. In Isaiah 30, verse 21, He tells them, This is the way. Walk in it. This is the way. And here the writer of Proverbs, the sage, tells us, Let's guard your way. Literally, the, mean, the word means to watch over or to protect. The root comes from the same root that means describes a hawk or a, a falcon to, to watch over your path like a hawk. A hawk has the ability to see eight times uh, with more clarity than, than, than the human eye does. It's like they see with binoculars times eight, and it's because they have very little peripheral vision. They're all, all their, their eye looks straight forward. It eliminates a distraction of the field. You, you focus forward. Watch your step. Preserve your life, he said. Guard your way. Literally protect your soul is what he's saying. Guard your step on the king's high way. Exercise great care over your soul. Jesus will say in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 16, 26, but what does it profit a man 
if he gains the whole world and forfeits his wife, his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Psalm 23 tells us, He leads us beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads us on his path of righteousness for his name's sake. We set our eyes on him. He leads us. And and, 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 uh, the way we guard our path is we fix our eyes on him with clarity. Now, in verse 18... So it's interesting. As sometimes we think, well, the proverbs are all disconnected. They, you know, and sometimes they are. But chapter sixteen really comes as a package. Um, verse one says, "The plans of, a, of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord." So that's how it begins. And, and in verse thirty-three, it ends, and it says, "This the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." And then so so the sage, I mean, so Solomon here, he, he's He's framed almost this entire chapter as, as everything in the context of God's sovereignty. In the first half, he's, he's talking to the kings. He say, look, kings, beware. All your wealth, all your power, all of those things, that doesn't trump the sovereignty of God. Just because of your wealth, just because of your power, you can't direct your own steps. God is still in charge. Even earthly kings have to bow to the one true king. And fearing the Lord and wisdom from the Lord and worshiping the Lord is more valuable than all the gold and all the power that you could ever attain. And Proverbs is always about these two things. You know, there's two, there's two ways, there's two women, there's a fool and the wise. The, the path that leads to life, the path that leads to destruction. And here he's talking about, listen, you want to you go to destruction? You want to you make your way to destruction? Pride is your guide to destruction. That's how you get there. Pride will lead you to destruction. Literally, the verse says, before destruction, pride. Before a fall, a haughty spirit. Destruction and fall, those aren't sterile words. They're not benign. Destruction means to break to pieces, to to fracture, totally collapse. Fall is is to bring to utter ruin. That's what that means. It's a result of sin. Pride is, on the one hand, it means to exalt yourself. A haughty spirit means to set yourself above others. He's painting a picture of an epidemic of the human heart and the desire to be better and to feel better than others in a very specific way. Here's what he's saying. There's not enough room at the top for both you and me. There's not enough glory for us both to share. Not enough success to go around. I must be above you. I must be better than you. I must rank higher than you. And we're driven to see ourselves better than those around us. C.S. Lewis, in his famous chapter on pride and mere Christianity, he writes this. He, this is the way he says it. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride only has pleasure in having more of it than the next person. Proud people aren't really proud of success or intelligence or, or, or being good-looking. 
They're proud of having more success, more intelligence, and better looks than the people around them. It's the comparison that makes us proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. I've told you this illustration before. It, it's, it makes me cringe at night when I remember it. But it was when Maggie was graduating from high school, and we were at the awards ceremony at Robert E. Lee. And so we were going to the award ceremony, and she was supposed to filled out this resume thing and, you know, of all the things she'd done in high school. And it was a long, cumbersome deal. And she said, well, nobody's filling it out, Dad. And so she didn't fill it out or whatever. I don't know what the thing, you know. But anyway, so we get to the award ceremony that night. And there, she said, nobody, you know, nobody filled it out, Dad. Okay, well, fine. So we go to the award ceremony. And I'm sitting there. And they're calling out all of these kids and um, listing out all their accomplishments, all the things that they have done, you know, one by one. And I could feel my pride rising up in me. It was consuming me. There's this old riddle that goes, um, here in this place you swallow me, yet were I more I could swallow you, what am I? Pride. It was swallowing me. And so finally they get to the S's, and in contrast of the resumes of glory that I had just listened to, Maggie's introduced, walks the stage, gets handed a certificate, it's kind of quiet. Everything in me wants to jump up and shout and announce all that she's done, everything, you know. So wait, wait, wait a minute. She just didn't fill out the sheet. And by the way, she's better than all those students, which in turn proves I'm a better father than all the other fathers here which is really what it was about, right? I was so mad. I was so mad at her. And that, I mean, it ruined the night. It ruined the night for me, ruined the night for her. I, it, was, it was this great moment of pride. And I missed, the, I missed the evening. I missed getting to love Maggie. I missed getting to encourage her. I missed being proud of her as a father. All I could think about was me. Because pride, you know what it is? Every time it's destructive. Every time it's ugly. Always. No exceptions. We clothe ourselves in it, and we believe that we've never been more beautiful or never been more glorious. And in fact, we've never been more hideous or ugly. That's how it goes. Always. See, the proud heart seeks to take God's place in our life. One writer says it this way. Pride in the spiritual sense, is refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for your own self. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in the, His garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on your own resources, and that is the greatest delusion. The delusional fantasy of all fantasies, the cosmic put-on. Pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift. That's what it is. It makes you look at your life and go, I, I, I did this. I did this. It's, it's like cosmic plagiarism. Humility, on the other hand, looks and says, you know what? It's all from God. 
Pride looks at your life and says, I did it. I earned it. It's my due. I'm entitled to it. If things go well in your life, it's because I worked harder. It's because, I, I mean, I'm, I'm better than those around me. I have more discipline. I'm smarter. I did it better. I have more values, more character. Ethically, I'm better. I mean, I did it. That's how pride works. If things don't go well in your life, then you look and you go, well, listen, I've, I've, had, I've endured more suffering. Things have just gone worse for me. I, I got a bad rap. It, things were unfair. That's how pride works. I'm, I'm, I'm owed something else. And the Bible tells us that why we have pride, why we don't want to admit that everything in our lives is a gift, nothing we have do we deserve is that we're totally dependent upon God for every breath. And the reason we don't want to admit that, the reason we don't want to say we're totally dependent is because then we have to say we're not in control. And that's what we all really, that's what we all really at the end don't want to do. You can pry control out of my cold dead hands, right? Or whatever. Nebuchadnezzar is the perfect example of that. Daniel chapter 4 tells the story. Starts out this way. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. Then he says, I saw a dream that made me afraid, and I laid in my bed, the fancy and the visions, and my head alarmed me. He's the king of the world. Literally, He's the king of the world. And he can't sleep. So he has to get Daniel, who's a, who's a slave to him, to say, Daniel, I can't sleep. You have to tell me what my dream means. So Daniel comes in and he says, hey, listen, I, Daniel, here, here's uh, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the deal. You're the king of the world, but Here's what your dream means. You're sinful. You are full of pride, and God is warning you to stop it. Nobody likes to hear the truth. So 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar's walking around on his roof singing this song. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And listen, we all have a song like that we sing. Different words, different tune, but we have it. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdoms departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Oh, would God be so gracious to do that to us? Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew, his eagle's feathers and his nails 
Philip Burtz was destruction and ruin came to him. That is where pride leads you. And the warning of the sage is, listen, if you do not address the pride in your life, destruction, ruin, fall, that's where you're going. where you're going. You might as well send a search party now. So how do you guard your steps? How do you protect your life? Verse 19, it's, it's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Micah will say, walk humbly before your God. Solomon 14 times in the Proverbs will say, fear the Lord. And here he says, look, be, be of lowly spirit. That, that's the way the verse describes it. You could sum it up in one word. Humility. Humility. Humility is the guide that leads us to life. So where do you get it? Where do you buy humility? Where's the humility store that you can go and buy humility at? Where do you get it? Well, you don't get it by trying to be humble. One writer says it this way. It's the shyest of all virtues. You can talk about humility. You can't talk about humility without it going away. It just doesn't want to be there. And therefore, you can't work directly on humility. So what are you supposed to do? So I would say this. Instead of looking at humility, you look at someone else. That someone else is Jesus. Humility is the byproduct of wanting something more than being humble. Because if being humble is your goal, then it's all about you. Humility comes from wanting Jesus above all other things. And I'm going to show you this, okay? Two places I'm going to show it to you. If you've got your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, he's going to... Paul's going to talk about this. He says it this way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Okay? That's the way he says it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then in verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And then in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. So you see what Paul's doing? His aim is for his readers to be of a lowly spirit, to have a humility. And he wants them to adopt humility as a framework for living. But what he's not going to do after verse 5 is he's not going to give them these ways to be humble. He's not going to say, here's, so here's eight ways in which to be humble. Because if he did, the history of the church proves out what would we do if Paul had done that? Paul gives eight ways to be humble. What would we do? 
we, we'd make a list, and then we'd put it on a card or blow it up on a poster, tape it to our refrigerator, and every day we'd check off the list, and then we'd be so proud of how humble we were. I mean, we'd be so proud of getting all the boxes checked. And then we would be the, the humility police. We'd say, well, I checked eight boxes, I checked, and you only checked six. I'm more humble than you. Clearly. In essence, we would be pursuing humility by the law. And you can't pursue humility by the law. We would be pursuing righteousness and acceptance by the law. We'd be pursuing the highway by the law. And listen, it's not just worldly pride that declares it doesn't need God. There's a form of pride that clothes itself in self-righteousness. And we call it spiritual and it brings with it the law. We, we put it in the backpack and we carry it as the law. And this is what the law does. The, the law is meant to, it's supposed to, show us the holiness of God, show us the righteousness of God, show us the blazing glory of God. And when we see that, we're supposed to be totally undone. Never are we to look at the law and go, yeah, I can do that. Holiness in the back. I might need to go to the gym for a couple of weeks, but I got it. Holiness, I got it. Check. The law leads us to a knowledge of God, which leads us to a knowledge of ourself, which leads us to a place of being undone. Which should lead us to saying, if that's the standard, I can never get there. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. I fall short. There's a story in, in Luke's gospel. Jesus tells a parable. You know the parable. It's a parable of two guys that are going to go pray. Two, two guys are going to go pray in the temple. And, and the, there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. They're going to go into the temple and pray. And Luke sets up the whole parable this way. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Pride and a haughty spirit. I can't. I mean, Luke's pulling no punches. So they go up to the temple and they pray. And here's the Pharisee. Listen to what it says. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the, the Pharisee is going to do two things. I'm going to point those two things out real quick. tax collector is going to do two things and point those two things out real quick. The first thing is the, the Pharisee, he, he begins and he says this, I, God, I thank you. Now, when, when you write a thank you note, You know the purpose of a thank you note to somebody? It's to thank them for what? Something they did, right? You know what the Pharisee does? God, I thank you. I'm so awesome. He doesn't thank God for anything. He doesn't go in there to worship God. 
goes in there to worship himself. God, I thank you for how awesome I am. That's the first thing he wants. If you get that kind of thank you note from somebody, I'm just saying, call it anything you want. It's not a thank you note. Secondly, he, he sneaks in there. So he says, oh, you know, I thank you that I didn't rob anybody. You know, good. That's against the law. You know, God's law and man's law. So good. You didn't do that. And I'm not an adulterer. Good. You know, good. You kept that. But, he's, but he puts something in there. He says, in that I fast twice a week. There's nothing in the Old Testament that commands or even hints that somebody ought to fast twice a week. That's his own thing. Look at me, God. I've done everything and more. Look at me. One writer says it this way. There are two ways to be your own Savior. One is by breaking all of God's rules. Another is by keeping all of God's rules. But in such a way, so focused on the external, you can feel so good about yourself on the outside that you can say, now, God, you owe me you look down your nose at other people and in both situations to break all of God's rules or to keep all of God's rules as a way of earning your salvation to, to get God actually off your back. To be in control of your own life. To be your own savior. To be your own master. To be your own Lord. You're not depending on God's radical grace. Two ways to be your own savior. Two ways... Two, two ways of being lost. Two ways of rejecting Jesus. Now listen, here's what happens. The, the tax collector, Jesus says, he stands far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you this, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes. God be merciful to me. And then literally it says, the sinner. In the Greek, there's a, there's a definite article, the sinner. Not us, sinner, the sinner. Well, what it means is the tax collector, he's not comparing himself to anybody else. His standard, he knows the standard. It's God. All I know is I'm lost. Where everybody else is doesn't matter. I know I need your mercy. I need your grace. I stand before you, God. That's where I stand. Here's the second thing. The word that the tax collector uses for mercy when he says be merciful to me it's not the usual word for mercy it's, it's a technical word it's, it's a very specific word it's, it's a word that would have been related to the temple that he was in in the temple there, there's a holy of holies there's a place where that, that God was where his glory dwelled and the Shekinah glory there and in the, the Ark of the Covenant where the law was, the, the place of holiness. And to come near 
to God was to be laid bare by His holiness. That's what the law does. It, it humbles and the, and the law reveals your need for a Savior. It always does. And over this was a golden slab. And the name of that slab in the Greek was called the Hilesteron. Translate that as the mercy seat. That's what the tax collector prays here. Be the Hilesteron to me. Be merciful to me. It's the same word that gets translated in your Bible a few times if you have the ESV or as propitiation or atoning sacrifice. It's what Jesus is. It's what Jesus did. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, cholesterol, for the sins of his people. The tax collectors not praying, hey God, we let it off, we just overlook this, we just let it slide this one time, we lower your standards. He's praying, God, would you make atonement? Would you cleanse me? Would you propitiate my sin? How does he do this? He does it because he makes Jesus the sin. Jesus becomes the propitiation. Jesus himself becomes the mercy. Go back to Philippians 2. Paul doesn't give us a list on how to give, get humble. What he does is he gives us a person. He gives us Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he emptied himself. Not of his deity. He's still God. He didn't give up his divine nature. He took onto himself human nature. He becomes a sore servant. He emptied himself of glory. Isaiah 53 will say he emptied himself of his beauty also. He had no majesty to look upon, no beauty we should desire him. He's rejected, he's despised, he's a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief, he's not esteemed, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, afflicted, pierced, crushed, he became small, he became lowly. And Paul says in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. And he came to earth, took on humanity, went to death, a shameful death, and then to the grave. And therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's resurrected, restored to his rightful place. He's he set along. He, he, he set it all aside. He gave it all away. The king became a servant. The author of life submitted to death and then he's resurrected. 
He was glorified, and in doing this, this act of humility, he defeated sin, he defeated death, he defeated pride, he ransomed us, he rescued us, he saved us, he redeemed with him a new humanity. He leads us along the path of righteousness. For his name's sake. He leads us to glory. He emptied himself so that we could be filled. Pride is seeking to fill yourself to get glory, to look beautiful, to be great. But alongside this, what Jesus has done makes our pride look hideous, doesn't it? So you want to kill pride? The way that we kill pride is by humility. And you want to be humble? You don't, you don't get humility by aiming at humility. You get there by a crystal clear hawk's vision of the Jesus that humbled himself for your sake. The Jesus that fulfilled the law that you couldn't, that died the death that you should have, and then reaches out and takes hold of you and has mercy on you. Jesus was treated the way we deserve so that now we believe in him we're treated the way he deserves to be treated. So who cares if you're slighted? Who cares if you're snubbed or mistreated or everybody in the gym doesn't know that you're the greatest father in there. Who cares? You're loved by the king. He humbled himself to serve you, to save you, to make you beautiful and glorious. And gazing at the cross does something in the depths of your soul. It, it develops it cultivates humility. And that's what your heart longs for. It's the glory your heart truly desires to be filled with. And it only comes by gazing at the glory of another, the glory of Jesus, the glory we were made for, created to experience. What are you pursuing? What glory are you settling?